Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Kingdom Now, the podcast featuring faith with an edge as we celebrate the kingdom of God within you. I'm your host, Dr. Leanne Marino, apostle, author, and theologian and founder of Spitfire Apostolic Ministries and all the works that go along with it. I'm excited to share this program with you as we explore the ins and outs of counterculture Christianity present as you live out the kingdom of God in your everyday life. Want to learn more? Visit my website at kingdompowernow.org. And now, our program, which features a variety of formats here just for you. Interviews, teaching and preaching proclaimed everywhere from my North Carolina studio to Sanctuary and beyond. And powerful insights here for now as we turn the world upside down everywhere we go. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, happy whatever time of day it is, wherever you are. And to our listeners in Japan, we say konnichiwa. We hope that whatever time of day when you are listening that you are having a good one. And I welcome you to this edition of the Kingdom Now podcast. And I'm your host, Puzzle Dr. Leanne Marino here as the Spitfire, serving as the voice of counterculture Christianity, where we feature the theme of faith with an edge. And if you'd like to learn more about counterculture Christianity, feel free to visit my website at kingdompowernow.org. One of the biggest requests I get topic-wise for this podcast is for church history. And if there's one thing I've noticed throughout the years, it's that most Christians don't have a very good understanding of church history. Now, there are a few reasons why I think that this is. Probably the major one is that they either haven't studied it And that would be probably because their church is not what we would classify as historical. It's most likely something that's existed for less than 100 years. And when church history is likely something that's discussed, if at all, it's usually within a very limited context. So it might be within the context of the founding of that specific church rather than the entire church or 
if somebody has studied church history, it's often presented through a lens that's so biased. It's literally about, hey, this is the church in the beginning. It was us, even though it doesn't seem like it. Then everything somewhere in there went to hell. And now here we are again. But the narrations that we have of church history matter. And part of why I think we miss the mark so much when it comes to our own understanding of church history is due to narration. Because we don't see, we don't really understand how church history applies to us today. But a history by which not only shows what happens when church gets political, not to mention how a persecuted group comes to in many ways forget its origins and run the world, has a great relevance to us in modern times. And for that reason, we need to do a relook at church history. This is the first of a two-part episode I'm doing on early church history, which will look at church history from around the first century to about 700 AD. And I give that expanse because church history tends to overlap a bit in terms of events because there wasn't just one thing going on. It wasn't like there was this chronological timeline that we can definitively go by that things happen in succession one after another. A lot of times, a lot of things were going on at once. And so the best thing we can kind of do is try to sort things out one thing kind of at a time and kind of talk about them topically rather than trying to discuss them from more complicated aspects of trying to do this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened because they were all kind of going on at the same time. So let's start here. When you think about church history, what comes to your mind? Do you think about the book of Acts and imagine the early church much like your church exists today? Just with camels around and everybody wearing bed sheets? Do you think that the early church was perfect with no conflicts, everyone agreeing and everyone and everything kind of getting along, you know, walking around, singing the hallelujah chorus all day while, you know, clouds descended from the sky? Well, before we discuss another thing, I want you to take any idea you've ever had about the early church and totally erase it from your mind. Pretend that you never had it. If we want to understand the early church, we have to start understanding it through its own lens, through its own narration, rather than trying to insert ourselves into it from the 21st century. Because the early church was not the 21st century, it was not in America or in most of the countries that listen to this podcast. And if we are trying to insert that kind of understanding into things, we are going to always fall short. The early church didn't look like us, and it didn't look like we think it did. The early church looked like the early church. And much like all things that are new, it had a certain sense of newness and optimism with it. But it also had the struggles of a movement, which is true to the nature of new movements. They had to sort out issues such as leadership and accuracy and facts of how the movement was going to grow and contrary to popular belief, they did not have all these issues sorted out in advance. Church history is not this massive story where God just kind of sort of spoke in everybody's ear and told everybody what to do all the time. There were people involved and I think we tend to overlook that fact. 
it's also false to assume that the early church was just the most perfected version of our immediate denominations. This is also false. It's also not how it worked. What the early church looked like were central groups of people who were gathered around the early apostles and received instruction from them. Or, as time went on and church got bigger, people who either received direct instruction from those apostles or who were somehow trained by people connected to them. One of the biggest mistakes we make is we read the book of Acts and we assume that was all that was going on in the early church. And while it is an account, it's definitely not the only account out there. The church didn't look like only one thing. It looked like multiple things. And sometimes those things weren't quite as orthodox as we might assume them to be. We kind of wrap up right teaching in modern times and take advantage of that concept, thinking that everything kind of fit into a nice, neat, perfect package. There were groups of believers that were more Jewish, such as those who followed the Apostle Matthew. There were those that were both Gentile and Jewish audiences, such as the Pauline and Petrine groups. And then there were those that were more mystical, such as the Johnanine school. And no matter what you might think of early church apocryphal writings, such as the Gospel of Thomas or the Odes of Solomon or the Christian Sibyllines or some of the apocryphal acts, such as the Acts of Andrew, they give us a lot of insight into the world of the early church. They do reveal the evolution of doctrine, of understanding, and it helps to fill in a lot of gaps that we don't get just from reading the New Testament. So if you want a picture of the world of the earliest days of the church, often of writings that are older than even some found in the New Testament, I tell people you definitely need to start there with the Apocrypha. Because the early church was a movement and it took several centuries for the church to start sorting itself out. And that sorting as a process was not a simple thing and everything was not always right all the time or understood all the time or clarified all the time. I've said that sometimes the mainline church was the true church. Sometimes it was a persecutor of the true church. Sometimes the two intersect. Sometimes they ran parallel. Church has never, as long as it's existed, been all one thing or all another thing. It has always been full of people who were trying to figure this faith thing out to the best of their ability. And while, yes, politics became a thing, especially the more that time went on, and we will see that as we go through this particular series, Overall, there have always been good believers and not so good believers. There have always been people who strive to do better and people who just didn't. Starting at the very end of the first century and then moving into the second century, we start to see a change in the way the church functioned. Now, before it's assumed that I'm saying some awful things happened and the church immediately fell into apostasy, there's a couple of things we have to consider. The first is that the church had grown a substantial amount. 
And by this time, there were no more direct living witnesses to the ministry of Christ and the crucifixion and resurrection living anymore, which I don't believe the first Christians anticipated would happen. They believed Jesus would return in their lifetime and never thought the church would go through two or three generations of believers with no return of Christ. Why is this important? Well, it's important for a few reasons. The first is that I don't really think the first apostles were thinking intergenerationally. They felt based on what they already saw happening in society with history and the church as well, as they understood it, that it would wrap up in their lifetime. So some of the bigger questions of organization and structure weren't immediately answered in the day of the first apostles. In New Testament times, the ministry work consisted of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And according to the Apostle Paul's wording, he believed such would be the way it would be until the time when Jesus returned. And I do believe that this can work until Jesus returns, no matter how long that might be. If we do a survey of work in the New Testament, there's plenty that can back up what needs doing. But such wasn't with a real institutional mindset. It was structural approach to church building, especially with new communities. And it certainly wasn't one that was going to conform the church to buddy up to the Roman Empire, which as time went on, the powers that be saw the influence of Christianity upon the people and desired to maintain a level of control over the church. So the Roman Empire desired to use the church. And what happened is that the church and the empire tried to use each other. And as time went on, that just kind of imploded. And this is all not to even mention that the influences of the church changed, especially as they started to ask more intense and technical questions about theological things, in particular the nature of Christ. So the church wasn't its casual movement anymore. It wasn't starting. And as a result, the church tried to organize itself differently. And what we see the rise of in response to that are a few different things. Now, the first thing to keep in mind is that there were basically groups that tried to revive that initial feeling or that kind of initial enthusiasm, if you will, that existed in the early church, even within the early church. So the very beginning, people tried to replicate even after things started to change. But the rise of what the changes started to become and the direction that they went in is probably best seen through a group of men who are known as the early church fathers. And you can read them online. Their works are pretty much everywhere. You can get books, copies of their books. I would encourage you if you are going to do that to check your sources because sometimes those documents are edited and they leave out things that would generate more criticism. So kind of monitor where you're getting that from. If you're interested in the book I'm going to recommend at the end, which is a book that I actually did write the outlines for and did include text from, does have writings of the early church fathers in it. And so you can get that and I will tell you more about that at the end. The early church fathers, though, represent a wide variety of ideas and concepts about different matters. They were a group of men, and it's really kind of important to say there were no women involved in this particular group. 
who were influential individuals in the early centuries of Christianity in establishment of thought and theological doctrine. There were a number of them over the years, writing from around the 2nd century to about the 8th century. There are a few notable names. Many more aren't as notable, but Irenaeus, Origen, Augustine, or Augustine, depending on how you're pronouncing it. I've heard it both ways. Ambrose, Basil, and John Christosom are probably names you've heard of if you are familiar at all with church history. And the church fathers wrote in Greek, Latin, and in Syriac. Many of them we don't know a whole lot about. We don't know where they came from. Several of them, particularly in the beginning, weren't clergy. Some don't have a lot of credentialing. They were just men who wrote different ideas, many of which were philosophical or theological in nature. And they became foundational to certain understandings of thought present at that time in history. So they were kind of the voices that made the most noise, for lack of a better way to put it, on different theological matters. And all of that kind of started to come together to form foundations of theology for the early church. It's important to say that not all of the early church fathers are regarded by every denomination. In fact, there really is not one specific set of criteria for what made the early church fathers. So, some are more highly regarded than others. For example, some are more popular in Eastern Christianity or in Oriental Orthodoxy than they are in Western Christianity and vice versa. And, you know, the way that that kind of goes all the way around. Basically, every group kind of has their favorites or has their favorites for the formulation of whatever it was that they believe now. Many of them have also come into question over the past several years. Some even left to join the heresies or the groups that they wrote against. So it's a mixed bag. Some later writings are rejected in favor of earlier ones. Sometimes it's the reverse. And overall, especially in modern times, there's a lot of examination of the early church fathers with a critical lens and justifiably so. I think that that's completely fair. When it came to things like heresies and their rebuttals, which we will talk about in the next episode, nobody foresaw the day when we would be able to read their writings or gain insights into those they criticized, let alone to have the education and skill to track what they wrote and determine how honest what they wrote was. So they didn't foresee down the line the total continuation, I guess, of information that we have now. And so they didn't write with that in mind. They were not writing or asking things or discussing things with the context that they would have to be accountable for it one day. They were just kind of sitting around and deciding what course they wanted the church to take and how they wanted things to look. And for that reason, I think we need to be critical. I think that we need to be interested in the different movements that posed revival, if you will, of the earliest believers because they tended to be critical of them unless for some reason they somehow got absorbed into the tradition, which some did. I think that we need to be paying closer attention sometimes to the groups that they denounced as heretics just simply because 
basically it becomes the question like Nietzsche posed, who are these men and who made them improvers? I mean, where did they come from and how did they become so front and center? You know, they show us how the church transitioned from being a movement to an institution. And that's not particularly a beneficial thing. So what happened? Let's talk about basically some of the stuff that happened. So the first major move that you see among the early church fathers is that they moved from the basic Ephesians 4.11 ministry where bishops, elders, and deacons assisted workers in the fivefold to a threefold ministry of bishop, pastor, and elder. Now, the notable role that changed probably the most obviously was that of the bishop. Because the bishop was the liaison for food distribution and for crisis assistance within the Roman Empire. So all matters that were governmental secularly ran through the bishops to the people. And this is probably the earliest sign of the two mixing of the state and the church starting to mix. Thus, bishops didn't just have church authority. They also wielded a lot of secular influence and power, and this started to change the way the church was overall perceived. Coupled with these different men who wrote about various matters, often from the perspective of Greek philosophy or different cultural insights, you start to see the church look very different than maybe it did two or three hundred years earlier. There were also writings that were more mystical, which we will talk about next. But what was their motive? And motives matter. So I'm not of the opinion that one day a bunch of people woke up and said, hey, let's change the image of Christianity as we know it with this huge, sinister, dark motive. I believe that as a succeeding generation, they recognized things were changing and that they desired to try and handle issues that arose at that time in history. They were not considering that anyone else would ever have a question of its authenticity. Remember, the average person in that era was illiterate and there wasn't a system of accountability in place because the church operated on different precepts. And their writings and their complexity and the things that they talked about were designed to attract the attention of a specific audience. And I believe that what happened at some point, this did become about power and prestige rather than the things of God. So basically what these men wrote is probably the equivalent of what we would classify as a thesis today. They basically purported their arguments, they put them forth, they made their arguments, and then those were either challenged, accepted, or denied. And that was kind of how they did things back then. And so as things continued to grow more and more, some of the writings were accepted. But before we judge them about being about power and control, let's realize that's a human issue and we aren't all as redeemed as we ought to be. So while that's all going on, so you've got people that are dealing with the technicalities, if you will, or trying to figure out theological and philosophical things that most people probably don't care about. 
as they were doing that, there were still others who were working and moving to expand the gospel throughout the world. So, for example, the original apostles went throughout the world, including the Celtic Islands, India, Asia Minor, Ethiopia, Jerusalem, Syria, Mesopotamia, Spain, Rome, modern-day Eastern Europe, and beyond. So there were communities there, there were people there who were doing the work, who were being the church, who were evangelizing people who had never heard the gospel before and were building up church, even in these subsequent generations. And martyrdom was a facet of Christianity in the early centuries before it was accepted in Rome. So the word martyr is from a Greek word that means witness. By being willing to die for their faith, Early Christians provided a witness to the veracity of the gospel. If they couldn't live for the Lord, they were willing to die while still in this body. They were not willing to deny the testimony of Christ to save their own lives. But the history of martyrdom is more complex than just dying for your faith. Because by being Christian, the early believers were in automatic conflict with the Roman government. Because if Jesus is Lord, then Caesar's not. And that tend to put Christians at automatic opposition with Roman rulers. But in a bigger sense, being a Christian radically changed the way believers saw themselves. For example, many women refused to marry pagan men because they desired to remain committed to the Lord to live asexual. And they refused custom. But being a Christian gave them that choice, that freedom to make those decisions and put them in opposition within greater society. So yes, they did die for the Lord. They did die for their faith. They did die for the gospel. But they also died because they stood up for what they knew was right for them. And because society didn't support it, they were willing to say, hey, I'm not going to go marry this pagan man just to make you happy. So that changed their relationships with everybody. It changed relationships with their families. It changed relationships with their government. And it changed their face, the face of life itself, because they were not going to bow down. One of the earliest and best known documentations that is fully accurate was the Passion of the Sicilian Martyrs, which details the trial and execution of 12 African martyrs in Carthage in the year 180. And so this also dispels the myth that Christianity is a white religion or a white thing because those earliest involved were not white. And as a result, people took notice and despite politics, it was often the witness of these individuals who were willing to go somewhere different and do something different and partner with people in different ways to accomplish everything God had for them to do. So as the gospel spread and more people started movements worldwide, there was evidence of the beginning happening again in its context within that day and age. In Ireland, for example, there's an entire tradition of its own 12 apostles. There were actually 14, according to this tradition. And there are entire stories and revelations of their work, not just across the Celtic Isle, but even one voyaging to North America in a leather boat to evangelize. And his name was Brendan of Clonfair, also called Brendan the Voyager. And this voyage was reproduced in order to prove whether or not it could be a legitimate thing in the 1970s by a man named Tim Severin. And the book is called The Brendan Voyage. 
From this work came the great work of Christian leadership in Ireland, by which people studied, were trained for ministry, and the Celtic Isles maintained their own faith traditions through until the unification of the church under the Holy Roman Empire after the 800s. And there was a lot of very strong, very powerful leadership that came out of Ireland as a result. And then we go to about the same time frame that we're talking about. And there were several different movements within Christianity. Because even in the earliest of times, people felt the church was becoming too worldly and it needed to get back to what it was about in the beginning. And a group of fourth century hippies decided to do something about it. So starting out as a group of hermits who wanted to live by themselves and spend their lives fasting, praying, and withdrawing from the world to work on an extreme level of holiness to overcome the flesh, we see the rise of the first monastic movement within Christian history. So this was a little bit first and then Ireland was a little bit later, which tells us that there were influences from both basically kind of hitting the Celtic Isles. And what happened was the initial people kind of wanted to go out and hang out in the desert and not be bothered by anybody else. So they wanted to do this by themselves. But people got wind of what was going on and also wanted to participate, thus leading to the beginning of a holiness experience out in the Egyptian desert. They sought to practice charity. Most gave away everything they owned to the poor. They practiced forgiveness, reciting scripture, prayer, a lot of fasting and withdrawing from society. They lived asexual and somewhat agender lives regarding the same rule and regulation for anyone of any gender. And those who desired to join these communities did so forming monasteries. And they were small communities led by an abbot or abbess by which they followed the specific rule established. The result was an intense mystical tradition based on visions, extreme spiritual encounters, and an overall sense of a spiritual renewal led by a group of men and three women known as the Desert Fathers. Now, a lot of the things that these people did, I wouldn't encourage if for no other reason they were very, very extreme. But I do believe that they were moved by a very deep and sincere faith. At the same time, I believe the Bible encourages us to pursue moderation. And those hanging out in the desert at this time weren't that interested in moderation. But they are definitely worth learning about and reading about because they pose an interest in Christian times and discipline. And they are the foundation of monastics to this very present day, even though there aren't very many left. There's an important legacy of faith that incorporates spiritual experience with discipline, which I believe is important for us even now. And so they were a revival. They were people who kind of looked out over everything that was going on and said, you know what, hey, we need to do something about this because things are not really turning out the way that we think that they should. And there are different collections of some of what they wrote, and they're often known as the sayings of the Desert Fathers. And they consist of these different stories and sayings from about the 5th century. So, for example, let's read some of them. A brother went to buy flax from a widow. She sighed as she sold it to him. What's the matter with you, the brother said to her. God has sent you today to minister to your brothers, my orphans, the widow said to him. And that brother was distressed to hear this. 
Taking some flax out of his shoulder bag, he tossed it into the widow's lap. In this way, he gave her joy. An elder said, human thought removes all the spiritual fat from a man and leaves him dried out. A brother found a piece of wood by the wayside that had fallen off a camel and he brought it to a cell. His Abba said to him, where did you bring that from? By the roadside, he replied. If it was brought by the wind, I carry it inside, the elder told him. If not, go and put it back in its place. There was an elder on the Jordan who entered a cave in the heat of the day and found a lion inside. It began grinding its teeth and roaring, but the elder said to it, Why get upset? This is a place with room for you and me. Get up and leave if you do not like it. Unable to tolerate this, the lion went out. An elder said, take no thought, keeping silent and secret meditation bring forth purity. The elders used to say, if you see a young man ascending to heaven of his own free will, seize him by the foot and drag him down, for it is to his advantage. A monk was working on a day when a martyr was being commemorated. Another monk saw him and said, is it possible that you are working today? He said to him, on this day, the servant of God was tortured, bearing witness to his faith and was beaten. Ought not I too make a little effort at work today? So these writings, as you can see, kind of have what we would classify as an Eastern flair to them. They kind of remind me of koans, which are short statements that people meditate on in Zen Buddhism. So they're from a different kind of tradition. It reflects wisdom literature or that kind of nature of things like Proverbs that we would hear from biblical times. They're thoughts that are supposed to make us think. They're supposed to make us move to action. They're supposed to bring us to a spiritual sense of contemplation. And in that, this is an important aspect of church history for that reason. It's not just queer church history. It's not just a church history that reflects a certain level of a gender or asexuality, but it's also one that shows us the relevance of reviving things in church that if we want to understand the concept of the first century, then maybe we have to keep reviving it over time and we have to keep focusing on that inclusion and we have to start thinking about things that bring us back to that initial time that instead of maybe looking at church history from the concept that something was ancient and then it got off track and now we're going to fix it and now we're going to do it right, we have to kind of look at the cycles of reviving throughout church history that things within church history come around and that is with all things they're circular rather than linear there isn't just a timeline there is an entire thing that brings us back to the wisdom of older times to the thoughts of different eras and most importantly to the insight and spiritual movement that was seen in the beginning well, I thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. And next episode, I will be looking more at the church politics that started to notably change the church and at the vast conflicts that were created as the church got more and more political. And this continues as we advance through the period of church history. We're going to look at councils, figures, and the growing East-West divide and explaining why the East-West divide exists to begin with. And I do hope that you've enjoyed this program. And if you would like to learn more, I recommend my book on early church history, which is 
part of a three-part series on church history. So there's early church history, middle church history, and modern church history. And that series is readings and outlines in church history. So the one I'm mentioning today is readings and outlines in church history, volume one, which is early church history, New Testament times through 700 AD. That's early church history, New Testament times through 700 AD. Look it up on amazon.com or wherever books are sold. If you look for my name, Dr. Leanne B. Marino, all of my titles will come up. I think it's about 36 now. Go on there and look for something. There is something for everyone and you will be blessed. I do believe that. Also, if you'd like to follow me on social media, I would love to hear from you. Let's have a conversation. Let's discuss what you're learning about on the podcast. Maybe a topic you'd like to hear. Follow me at Kingdom Power Now. I am on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and a bunch of other places. So just look me up at Kingdom Power now, and I would love to hear from you. Let's start a conversation. Also, if you'd like to learn more about the world of counterculture Christianity, feel free to visit my website at kingdompowernow.org. That's kingdompowernow.org. If you'd like seminary, a practical, affordable seminary, one that you will use everything you learn in to do ministry today, including a complete church history course divided into three different parts. Then check out Apostolic University Seminary at apostoluniversity.org. That's apostoluniversity.org. Also, if you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area and you are interested in found family, because family means that nobody gets left behind, feel free to check out the work of Sanctuary International Fellowship Tabernacle, better known as Sanctuary at welcomeinthisplace.org. That's welcomeinthisplace.org. And if there is something that is not found on there that you would like to know more about, out, feel free to reach out to any one of us who are listed on that site and we will be more than happy to get back to you. And this is Apostle Dr. Leanne Marino leaving you with this thought in this first of two-part series. We need to know about our history so we can know about where we've been, where we're at now, and where we're going. And that maybe somewhere in here we can find that these revivals back to the beginning are essential and needed in our day and age. Until next time, be blessed. Thank you for joining us on Kingdom Now. I pray it proves to be a blessing in your life. To learn more about this work, ask a question, submit feedback or a topic suggestion, advertise on air or donate to this work. Visit my website, which contains essential information and links for other points of contact around the web at kingdompowernow.org. Also, if you are in our area and would like to visit Sanctuary International Fellowship Tabernacle SIFT, visit welcomeinthisplace.org. Until next time, this is Apostle Dr. Leanne Marino reminding you that the kingdom of God is within you, and that means the kingdom is now. <laughs>